What happens when you cross the 43rd president, late-night sketch comedy, and compelling conversation? The Strategerist, a podcast born from the word strategery, which was coined by SNL and embraced by the George W. Bush administration. We highlight the American spirit of leadership and compassion through thought-provoking conversations. And we're reminded that the most effective leaders are the ones who laugh. Well, we've got a pretty special episode today. First off, our co-host is Hannah Abney, who heads up our external affairs department. Hannah, thanks for waking up early this morning. You're welcome. And if you're at the Bush Institute and you have a podcast called The Strategist, you really have to get on the man himself, the 43rd president of the United States, President George W. Bush. Andrew, thank you. Hannah, it's good to see you this morning. Uh, I'm honored to be on The Strategist. <laughs> well, and so the name, The Strategist, is derived from strategery, which is supposedly a famous Bushism, but uh, I think there's a little bit of a story there. Well, there is a story. So uh, for 17 years, let's see, for, yeah, 17 years, I thought I said the word strategery. Uh, occasionally, I would get my words mixed up. Uh, it's called a malapropism. <laughs> and, uh, you didn't get that one mixed up. No. I, <laughs> Nailed it. I, well, I'd been researching it. Uh, and so uh, Laura and I took Lauren Michaels, the head of Saturday Night Live, or the producer, or the f- creator, to dinner. And uh, at one point in the dinner, he said, we created the word strategery. And I said, no, you didn't. I said it. And he said, uh, no, no. Our, one of our great speechwriters came up with the word, and we basically stuck it on you. <laughs> and I said, you got to be kidding me, Lauren, for – all these years, I thought I said strategery, and you're telling me I didn't? He said, that's right. I said, well, let me ask you, did the guy come up with misunderestimate? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyway, that's, I'm, I'm honored that the uh, malaprop that evidently I didn't come up with is uh, a part of the Bush Center. That you've been saddled with all these years. I have. I have. <laughs> well, we're glad you're on our podcast. Do you listen to podcasts? No. Okay. Well. I mean, I'll, of course, we'll listen to this one. So we wanted a podcast that would allow us to interview some of the really cool people that come through the Bush Center. We're really lucky to have some awesome leaders. Well, I'm honored to be considered cool. (laughs) And but we wanted to be authentic. So we think around the Bush Center that we take our work more seriously than we take ourselves, and we think Mm. that that might come a little bit from your leadership. Do you think it's important Uh, to take your work more important than yourself? Yes. But I think it's very important not to take yourself too seriously. Yes. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think if any time you're a part of an organization where one attempts to advance their own interests, it undermines the culture of an organization. So, for example, during the presidency, uh, I worked hard to surround myself with people who were there not to serve me or a political party, but were there to serve the country. And uh, so culture is very important. We've got a fabulous culture here at the Bush Center because we're all aimed at making this place relevant and important and lasting. And the leadership you provide there is is on spot and that we are so empowered to to try and do great things. And we're good. We're lucky to be here. Well, I take, for example, strategist. It feels like it's a great thing emerging. 
Well, thank you. We we hope so. We're uh, we're having to overcome some shortcomings of the host, but other than that, I think <laughs> we're moving right along. Better way, Andrew. <laughs> so during our engage event with Lauren Michaels, that you were talking, so you went to dinner with him after our engage event, correct? A couple of years ago, right? yeah. And during that event, you said that a part of the past of the presidency includes humor because our nation needs to laugh. Yeah. So what's it feel like to be the guy that's providing that material? Uh, you know, it's just part of the. It's just part of the job. Uh, I think it is very important for uh, society and individuals to either collectively or individually laugh because laughter is such a, a part of a, uh, a uh, light spirit. And a heaviness on a society or a heaviness that clouds an individual's vision is uh, can be uh, very weighing. And it's hard to be optimistic if you're not able to smile. One of the jobs of a president is to create an optimistic uh, vision for the country. And I don't say you can be optimistic if you're like worried that somebody's making fun of you. <laughs> right. Good point. Uh, by the way, I did watch him make fun of my dad. And, you know, his uh, the way he handled it was very instructive to me. Uh, one, uh, he just accepted it as part of the job. As a son, I didn't particularly accept it. Uh, the the humor on my dad, if it was particularly if it was biting, but which made it easier for me when I became president to accept, uh, you know, hu humor as part of the job. The other thing, though, is he he befriended Dana Carvey, uh, and as a matter of fact, at the end of his presidency, when uh, he was saying uh, had a farewell party for the White House staff, he uh, surprised everybody with uh, Dana Carvey as the guest. And I thought it was, you know, a great example of humility and uh, of humor. And so besides this, you learned a lot from your father and your mother about humor. And we saw that their humor on display at a recent Engage event just that was remembering your father. Who else did you learn humor from, though? We, we've seen we know about them. Well, that's about all you needed from? to know, because they had such a huge influence on my life. I mean, my mother, uh, you know, was very quick, very funny, and uh, was capable of uh, dealing with hypocrisy in a humorous way. My dad was a little more subtle, but he loved a good joke, and he loved to laugh, and, uh, uh, and was pretty famous for uh, grading others' jokes. So <laughs> in the post-presidency, a lot of his buddies around the country would send in jokes, and he was the judge of the jokes. And, uh, you know, I can't remember the grading scale, but, like, if you got a four on your joke as opposed to a three, it was considered a wonderful day for the jokester. <laughs> Do you remember his favorite joke? No. <laughs> so we were doing our research for this interview. Yes. And I did a quick Google search. When you searched... George W. Bush and humor. Yeah. There are a lot of results that come up. About 400 of the search results are of you dancing. Oh, yeah. In different, in different places. Well, that's an interesting way to uh, analyze my dancing. <laughs> it is. But one moment um, that come up, comes up a lot, and I remember it, was from Livingston, Zambia. We were there. You were there. Yes. Mrs. Bush was there. Yes. Renovating a clinic. And I remember, so we were there um, as part of our cervical cancer screening and treatment program. And I recall the women were so nervous yeah. as they filed up to be tested for the first time to see if they had uh, HPV or cervical cancer. And then the mood shifted. They began to sing. Yeah. And there was some dancing involved. Um, and there was a lot of laughter and a lot of joy. Do you, do you remember that? I do. Uh, clearly. And, uh, 
here's what uh, struck me was amidst all the uh, deprivation and poverty, there was a joy. And I got caught up in the spirit, the joyful spirit. And they started singing and clapping and a couple of us started dancing and uh, it was really fun, really fun. And, you know, it was part of my way of telling them that I could, you know, was trying to relate to them, but also that I knew they were nervous. They were nervous being around a president. They were frankly a little nervous because finally somebody had paid attention to what may be a major health issue and they were uncertain as to whether or not they needed treatment. And so the dancing and the joy was a way of, of, uh, for me to, uh, help them enjoy the moment. And they really helped me more than I helped them for sure. But it was fun. It was really fun. That moment must have really stuck with you because the, uh, the women that you met on that day, you painted, and that painting sits in the Bush Institute now. I did. I painted the faces of, I think it was eight women. And of five of them were the older women who were very joyful. Three of the women were the younger women who were very nervous. Oh, interesting. Yeah. There was a great apprehension amongst some of the young women because, you know, as I say, this seemed like the first time that uh, any organization or entity had paid attention to their health. And so these young, I think young girls uh, were, you know, they were justifiably nervous. I mean, there was a lot of authority there. I think the first lady of Zambia came by at some point and, uh, and I don't recall these were the dancers either. I think they were kind of sitting on, uh, sitting in their seats, you know, and, and uh, nervously awaiting their turn. And they were healthy. They were healthy. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. I thought, you know, I did a lot of public dancing. I thought you might have, uh, Googled George W. Bush's great dance moves and that, you know, the critics were saying, wow, this guy can shake it. <laughs> well, they were. Well, one of the, I, do, do your daughters ever send you the meme on your phone when they're, when they're texting with you to the one of you dancing? That's just a two second clip of dancing. Uh, no, I haven't seen that one yet, but I do know that when I was dancing, I can't remember where it was during the presidency. might've been in the Rose Garden. It might have been in uh, Liberia at uh, at, a, at a, an event uh, that uh, it made, you know, like in those days, or like there were no podcasts uh, and the Internet was just taking hold and things going viral was a new phenomena. And uh, I think one of my daughters said, you went viral. <laughs> and I said, no, I'm healthy. <laughs> so you were talking about um, laughter and being optimistic. Yes. And I think if you, if all you did these days was watch 24 hour news, maybe you would feel like, or a lot of people feel like maybe that the world is ending. Yes. Um, but of course it's not. Um, and we know that. So because therefore the don't watch 24 hour news. <laughs> yeah, good point. But what keeps you optimistic? Uh, you know that, uh, first of all, my understanding of history of this country. We have been through some very difficult periods in the past. Uh, this one, for some people, seems like the most difficult. It's not. Uh, that democracy has got uh, institutional safeguards that enable the ship of state to sail on, uh, that elections uh, enable democracies to heal, and that uh, 
the soul of America is good and generous. And so I'm very optimistic. And I think nothing shows that soul as much as programs like PEPFAR, which started under your Yeah, PEPFAR was a big deal. Sad thing is most Americans have no clue. If anybody's listening to this podcast, they're probably scratching their head going, what is PEPFAR? And the answer is it was your taxpayers' money going to save lives on the continent of Africa. There was a pandemic destroying an entire generation of Africa. And thanks to the generosity of the American taxpayer, millions now live who would have died. And I, uh, you know, and, and if one were to go to Africa and say, you know, I'm an American, they'd say thank you. Most Africans would say thanks. Yeah, that's a, an incredible accomplishment from the U.S. taxpayer. It really is. Leadership. It really is. It's uh, uh, and the fundamental question is, do the American people see that it's in our national interest to uh, save a continent from a pandemic? Oftentimes people say, well, we've got our own problems. And my answer is yes, we certainly do. But nothing compared to a pandemic and its destructive effects on a continent. And so uh, and here at the Bush Center, we learned that uh, a woman with the AIDS virus was likely to get cervical cancer. Cervical cancer was a leading co- is a leading cause of death of women in the, on the African continent and decided to do something about it. We, want, we continued uh, the spirit of PEPFAR. Last week was the Warrior Open, uh, which is a great, it's, it's a great way to honor our veterans. It's a great celebration. This, at this year's Warrior Open, did you see anything different between this year and any of the previous years we've done? This is our, I think, eighth year to do it. You know, it struck me that we had two double amputees play and that Odierno showed with only one arm and yet, had, yeah, it was, and has such a great spirit. Uh, the idea of having a uh, spousal event uh, was a smart idea, and which we had done in the past. But the wives were very appreciative of uh, the fact that the Bush Center cares about them as much as they cared about the golfers. Well, and during the pro am, Ryan Palmer got a hole in one on the same hole you got a hole. Yeah, in well, that you know, I, yeah, it was nice of him. <laughs> do they need to make the hole harder? Do you think? Uh, no, I think it's plenty hard. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, he dunked it. The ball actually did not bounce on the green, but uh, like a basketball shot, it went straight into the to the hole, and it was a dunk. It was good. I'm glad he did it because he and I were talking about my hole in one prior to him teeing off. Yeah. <laughs> He's just a show off. Then he had, he was trying to show you up. Hey, Amarillo boy, and it was very nice of the pros to be there. We're very thankful that uh, people took time to come and and. Uh, you know, hang out with the vets. And one of the things is I know that they're impressed. So one of the things, I don't know if you know this story, but during the pro-am, David Doherty, one of the warriors who played this year, was getting ready to tee off with his group. And Jason Pock, who was a member of our first Stand 2 Veteran Leadership Program, works at Boeing, was playing in the same group. And as they were coming up to the tee box, they David was kind of looking at him like, I know this guy. I know him. And then... He, Jason turned around and they made the connection that they had been together during the war and that the last time they'd seen each other was when Jason was being airlifted out. Oh, Nate, yeah. And so they had this really incredible moment um, where they were seeing each other for the first time, which was pretty divine intervention. Very for, much so. Yeah. Um, but there were a lot of tears and a lot of emotion. And that's the kind of thing I think about the Warrior Open and the W100. You think stories like that happen once in a while, but it feels like they happen every year. Yeah. And the thing that's really important is that uh, the participants, uh, past and present in our golf and uh, biking 
experience uh, form a peer-to-peer counseling network where they counsel each other. Uh, So we can sit and be very empathetic, you know, and it's almost like hero worship in a way. uh, You know, to some vet who's been through unbelievable stuff and we're kind of, wow, you mean you're unbelievable. But it doesn't help deal with some of the invisible wounds of war. What helps is for a fellow vet to say, look, I know what you're going through, man, and here's the way I dealt with it. And you ought to try it. And so the these networks uh, not only help each other that are that have participated, but they reach out to other vets as well. And so we're a part of we do a lot of things for vets here, but we're a part of a larger group of peer to peer counseling uh uh, networks around the country. Yeah, our Warrior Wellness Alliance is doing, it's one of the many things our military service initiative is doing yeah. great work in. It's good work. Yeah, it, it really is. And important. And so we have uh, parlayed our strength, which is the capacity to assemble smart people and capable people uh, to rally a group of disparate organizations toward a common cause. I have one more question for you about our programming, which is in about a month, uh, President Clinton will be here for the graduation of our Presidential Leadership yes. Scholars Program. Our, our, what is this? Our fifth class, five yeah. years. Yeah. Um, and I know you've gotten to meet them. They're actually going to be here this week. I'll um, meet them tomorrow night. Mm-hmm, that's right. And so I wondered about what you think about that program. I think, first of all, uh, a lot of people say to me, can't we figure it out how to work across the political divide? And I said, well, look at what we're doing at the Bush center. We've got a leadership program that Bill Clinton and I are very much involved in, as is LBJ and and, uh, Bush 41. That would be my dad. And uh, uh, it is a way for us to bring a group of people that are talented and optimistic and well, want to continue to learn, bring them together regardless of political party, race, you know, whatever. And help them learn the skills necessary to become better leaders. Uh, and so I'm, uh, this is a, a, this is an ingenious program that, uh, will stand the test of time and, uh, will have a very positive contribution to our country. Yeah. They're doing pretty incredible things. Yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing old Bill, you know, as I mentioned, uh, at my dad's, uh, funeral that, he, we call him a brother with a different mother. <laughs> One of the things that we love to do here on on our podcast, and for the record, that we believe this is probably the first podcast you've been on. We're going to do some fact checking and make sure on that. But no, I'm pretty confident it is. Well, we're gonna we're gonna claim yeah, it. Make as sure. Treatment. Well, make sure. Do, yeah, do some fact checking at age seventy two. My mind is beginning <laughs> to slip a little bit. I don't believe that for a second. But at age 72, you've probably been asked just about every question under the sun. So you've done countless interviews. What is a question that no one asks you that you wish they would? Uh, why do you use only reds, blues, and yellows and white in your paint mix? Why, why do you? Why do you? Uh, so I can learn to mix colors. Ah. Uh-huh. So we've had two behind the scenes with the artists today. We've had the uh, learning about the juxtaposition of joy and fear and the painting with the African ladies. And now about your use of colors. Yeah. And so uh, one of my I, I'm one is never too old to take instruction. 
I still have, as a matter of fact, this afternoon, I'll be painting with an instructor, one of my two instructors, Jim Woodson. He came into my studio and said, what do you want to learn? I said, color. He said, well, get rid of all the paints you bought. I had bought every color there was. You know, I look in a, a painting catalog and, oh, that looks like a nice color. And so I only use a thalo blue, cad yellow light, cad yellow medium, cad red light, a lizard, and a white. And I've learned to mix every every color possible. And uh, it's changed my painting and it changed my appreciation of the use of color in my paintings. Well, there it is. Lesson from the artist himself. Yeah. President Bush, we can't thank you enough for spending the time with Andrew, us this morning. Thank you for having me on my first podcast. <laughs> if you enjoyed today's episode and would like to help us spread the word about the strategist, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the major listening apps. If you're tuning in on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll find episode notes with helpful information and details you may have missed. The Strategist was produced by Ioana Pappas at the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas, Texas. Thank you for listening.